one more quick announcement to add. Uh, the Slade brothers, who were standing to my left, are going to be teaching dance lessons all summer long. Um, Monday mornings at 9 here. Sign up. Don't want to miss that. Um, my name is Ben Robertson. It's a pleasure to be here with you and my family here to the front. Um, I'm a campus minister over at the College of William and Mary, if we've not met. Uh, if you're a visitor, a special welcome to you. We're so glad that you're here. Um, this summer, if you've been around, you know that we're in the middle of a series on the I Am Statements of Jesus uh, from the Gospel of John. And this, this week is sort of a parenthesis in the middle. Uh, we're looking at the question that Jesus asked his disciples, who do you say that I am? Which is why we are studying the I Am Statements of Jesus. So look in Mark chapter 8. Mark chapter 8, starting in verse 27, we'll read to the end of the chapter. Mark 8. I hear some pages turning. Let's give you a moment. Mark 8, 27. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist. And others say, Elijah. And others, one of the prophets. And he asked them, But who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, You are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. And after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel's will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Let me pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your strong words, and we pray that as we study those words, that you would speak to us afresh, and that you would show us who you are, and that we would be changed. We ask this in your mighty name. Amen. I want to open this morning by reading to you a prayer, a prayer um, that comes from our associate pastor, Camper Mundy's second favorite movie. His first favorite movie is Rocky. His second favorite movie is Talladega Nights, The Ballad of Ricky Bobby. <laughs> now, I'll warn you if you're unfamiliar with the film, uh, it's a little uh, irreverent, a little silly, a little, little snapshot from the theater of the absurd, but here it is, Ricky Bobby, uh, Blessing Dinner. And he prays this, Dear Lord Baby Jesus, or as our brothers to the south call you, Jesus, we thank you so much for this bountiful harvest of Domino's, KFC, and the always delicious Taco Bell. I want to say thank you for my family, my two beautiful, beautiful, handsome, striking sons, Walker and Texas Ranger. Dear Lord Baby Jesus, we also thank you for my wife's father, Chip. We also hope that you can use your Baby Jesus' powers to heal him and his horrible leg 
It smells terrible, and the dogs are always bothering with it. Dear tiny infant Jesus, and then his wife interrupts. Hey, um, you know, sweetie, Jesus did grow up. You don't always have to call him a baby. It's a bit odd and off-putting to pray to a baby. Well, look, I like the Christmas Jesus best, and I'm saying grace. And when you say grace, you can say it to grown-up Jesus or teenage Jesus or bearded Jesus or whoever you want. You know what I want? I want you to do this grace good so God will let us win tomorrow. He's a race car driver. Context. And he continues to pray, Dear tiny Jesus in your golden fleece diapers with your tiny little fat balled up fist pawing in the air. And his father-in-law interrupts. He's had enough. He was a grown man. He had a beard. Look, I like the baby version best. Do you hear me? I win the races and I get the money. And then it continues. It goes on, but I'll stop there. So Ricky Bobby, this is obviously absurd and ridiculous. And yet what it actually is is satire. Uh, He's honing in on something that's actually quite true of you and me. See, the answer to this question, who do we say that Jesus is, has consequences. I get to pick the Jesus I want. I want baby Jesus, teenage Jesus, bearded Jesus, societal Jesus, kind Jesus, loving Jesus, angry Jesus. The Jesus that you pick shapes the way that you pray, the things that you pray for, the very way that you live. And at the end of the day, I'm a little bit sad to say I'm actually a lot more like Ricky Bobby than I care to admit. I want to craft Jesus in the image that I want him to be and live my life accordingly. To read into the scriptures a virtual avatar of myself. Jesus is asking his disciples and us a question here. First he asks his disciples an intro question. A broader question. Who do people say that I am? Who do people say that I am? And they answer him. John the Baptist and others say Elijah and others one of the prophets. That's sort of an airbrushed answer if you're following the story at all in the Gospel of Mark. Some people have been saying some other things about Jesus, less kind. But we could ask that question today. Who do people say Jesus is? I work on the campus. Typically, if I were to walk around and ask people, who do you think Jesus was? Just stop a stranger on the brick sidewalk and ask. They're probably going to say he was a great teacher. He was a moral man, a spiritual man, a man who was in touch with God who gave us great teachings. Uh, The lead singer for U2, Bono, responded to this idea in an interview not too long ago. Bono says this, I don't think you're let off easy by saying he was a great thinker or a great philosopher, because actually he went around saying he was the Messiah. That's why he was crucified. He was crucified because he said he was the son of God. So he either, in my view, was the son of God or he was nuts. Forget rock and roll messianic complexes. I mean Charlie Manson-type delirium. Charlie Manson-like delirium. That's just more how he said it. And I find it hard to accept that whole millions and millions of lives, half the earth for 2,000 years, have been touched, have felt their lives touched and transformed by some nutter. I just just don't believe it. C.S. Lewis gave the famous trichotomy that Jesus could either be a lord, a liar, or a lunatic. That's what Bono was getting at. and doesn't think that liar or lunatic really fit the bill. We could add a fourth one uh, some years later now, and that is one of legend. That he could be a legend, that perhaps the Gospels were written much later in projecting this mythology back onto this man. Um, we could deal with that all day, but quickly. The manuscript evidence that we have for the early documents of the New Testament are now so old that some of these later theories and higher criticism 
just don't hold up anymore. We have old scraps that we have discovered that, are, that have shown that these gospel accounts were written much, much closer to the actual dates of Jesus within the lifetime of his apostles. Also, the genre of the gospels doesn't fit. There's eyewitness claims. There's historical accounts that are given. You can't say these, these just don't read like myth. Go read Greek mythology, then read the New Testament. They're completely different in style, in claim. So either they are complete fabrications or they are telling the truth. But you could spend years studying who people say that Jesus is at this scholarly, academic level. You can go to the College of William and Mary. You can be a religious studies major. Then you can go on and get a Ph.D. And you can read until you are old and gray and go into the grave and study the question of who people say that he is. And Jesus won't just leave it there. Because that question, who do people say that I am, is actually a very safe question. It keeps Jesus at a distance as an academic, sociological, and religious inquiry. So after he asks that first question and they give their answer of who the people say that he is, he asks another one. But who do you say that I am? And that is a dangerous question. Because to answer it, you have to step in and you have to live with the consequences of your answer one way or another. It's a question that all of us must answer. How does Peter answer? He has a great answer. You are the Christ. You're the Messiah. You're the anointed one. The fulfillment of God's promises that a rescuer king will come and save his people and restore them and make them whole. It's the right answer. It's the right answer, but Peter is yet oh so wrong. Verse 31, and he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this to them plainly. Jesus is saying, oh, yes. I'm the Messiah. Don't tell anyone yet. He tells them not to spread it yet. But let me tell you what that really means, Peter. He says, I'm the son of man. The son of man must suffer. That's an allusion to the book of Daniel, where a prophecy is given of this divine figure called the son of man who comes in judgment, who is glowing and shining. Verse 38, Jesus says it again. For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation of him will the son of man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of the Father with the holy angels. Describes himself coming with holy angels, with the glory of the Father, claiming the divine right of judgment on those who would reject his words. He's amping it up. Yes, Peter, I'm the king. I'm the king who's come to restore all things, but much more of a king than you think. Even greater than you were imagining greater than your wildest dreams, and I have come to save, but I must suffer. Salvation will come through suffering. He began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer and be rejected and killed. That word must, he must suffer. It's the language of divine necessity. It's the thing that absolutely has to happen. He must be rejected, scorned, and killed This is not what Peter had in mind. 
with his technically correct theological answer. Peter does not like this. Verse 32, Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. That word rebuke is the same word that Mark uses for when Jesus drives out demons. Peter just calls the man the Messiah and then Jesus, let's step aside and begins begins to rebuke him. See, Peter wanted a political candidate with no skeletons in the closet that he could endorse and follow into a new age of prosperity and secure borders for Israel. He wanted a handsome kingly Messiah. He wanted his version of golden fleece diapers and a KFC kingdom. He wants a Christ with a crown, but not a Christ on a cross. And you and I are so much like Peter. If we confess Christ, and yet we want some version of Jesus in our own making, who suits our own agendas, our life strategies, our own pursuit of meaning and fulfillment and purpose. Think about it in the different spheres of our lives where Jesus' name is appealed to. Thankfully, that's not happening in politics right now. We're living in the golden age of American politics. Um, Great humility and charity all around. Fraught with wisdom. No, I'm kidding. Um, We can pick on politics, but let's get closer to home. What about in the church? Just think of general American evangelicalism. Of course, Jesus has been hijacked to suit the American dream of wealth and success and the prosperity gospel that is so widely preached. I don't think we do that that much here. I think we are guilty of it in subtle ways. But I may want Jesus to come and give me emotional stability. I don't like struggling with things. I don't like anxiety. If I go to Jesus, maybe he'll free me from that. He will, but is that all? Or maybe I go to Jesus for right answers. Correct theology, right principles so that I can live my life the right way. Which is true, but Jesus was much more than a Pharisee. He didn't just come to give us right answers for right living. Think about it in popular American youth group culture. Remember a few years back, Conan O'Brien somehow got his hands on a Christian catalog and he, he would show over and over, it was a series that he, he did this for years, these little statues of Jesus playing soccer or lacrosse and just with a big smile on his face and just how we have taken him and commodified him to suit the vision that we have for the good life. I do the same thing in campus ministry. I want RUF, my campus ministry, to have a nice, nice small groups, people who get along. I don't want things to get ugly and messy. I want people to come Please bring your friends. I beg them. Come so that we can grow this ministry and so we can all get along together and I can send out postcards with your pictures on it. But I don't want things to get messy and difficult and hard. I don't ever want to have to carry the cross of rejection. If your idea and mine of following Jesus does not include an assumption or an expectation of self-sacrificial suffering of bearing the cross of rejection, then our confession of Christ is actually satanic. You are the Christ. Peter, that means dying. No, it doesn't. Get behind me, Satan. Satan. But take heart. Because this is the way to life. The way of suffering and the way of death are the road to life. 
verse 34. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel's will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? Jesus gives us a paradox. To keep your life, you must lose it. To lose your life, you will save it. We're all trying desperately to keep our life. Something worth living for. Our reputations, our wealth, our status, our comfort, our sense of self-respect and self-righteousness. And Jesus is saying, ultimately, all of these things are nothing. Several years back, uh, 60 Minutes did this amazing interview with Tom Brady. You know, Tom Brady, Patriots quarterback. At this time, he had won three Super Bowl rings, just three at that time. Poor guy. All by the age of 30. And he is in this interview. It's, it's really amazing. It's one of the only times I've really seen Tom Brady seem vulnerable. He said this, Why do I have three Super Bowl rings and still think there's something more out there for me? Maybe a lot of people would say, hey, man, this is what it is. I've reached my goal, my dream, my life. Same word Jesus uses. But me, I think there's got to be more than this. Then the interviewer on 60 Minutes asks, asks him, so what's the answer? Brady stares into the middle distance and says, I wish I knew. I wish I knew. And Jesus' answer for Tom and for you and for me is to lose it all. It's to lose your life, to take up a cross and to follow him. So insofar as you and I are self-seeking, self-protecting, self-determining, even think about it just in your relationships. Try to be self-seeking, self-protecting, and self-determining in your marriage and see how great of a relationship you will have. As long as you do that, you keep yourself from actually having life. The same is true with our God. That word that he uses for life is the word psyche in the Greek. And it doesn't just mean living and breathing. It doesn't just mean I'm alive like an animal or a plant. But it's your life is the soul or the self. The whole person. All of who you are. Everything that we build our identities on. The good or the bad. See, we could even seek Jesus as a way of serving ourselves. Go to Jesus because he will cure my anxiety, make me feel better, give me a stronger sense of identity. And this idea of giving up ourself is perhaps all of our greatest fears. It definitely is for most of my students at the college. A big obstacle for coming into Christianity, for following Jesus, is this idea that, but I don't want to lose who I am. I don't want to lose my individuality. I don't want to lose, especially with millennials, right? Wonderful me. Uh, I, don't, I don't want to lose that. Am I going to have to give that up? But Jesus, of course, he's saying, if you lose your life, you will keep it. Lose yourself and I will give you a new self. Who you were truly made to be. But even that is not what we can go to him for. Just to get my true self C.S. Lewis writes this. This is the very last page of his famous work, Mere Christianity. He says this. 
Christ will indeed give you a real personality, but you must not go to him for the sake of that. As long as your own personality is what you are bothering about, you are not going to him at all. The very first step is to try to forget all about yourself altogether. Your real new self will not come as long as you are looking for it. It will come when you are looking for him. He goes on. This principle runs through all of life from top to bottom. Give up yourself and you will find your real self. Lose your life and you will save it. Submit to death, the death of your ambitions and favorite wishes every day and the death of your whole body in the end. Submit with every fiber of your being and you will find eternal life. Keep back nothing. Nothing that you have not given away will ever really be yours. Nothing in you that has not died will ever be raised from the dead. Look for yourself and you will find in the long run only hatred, loneliness, despair, rage, ruin, and decay. But look for Christ and you will find him and with him everything else thrown in. Do you hear what he's saying? It's just what Jesus is saying to Peter and his disciples. What can a man give for an exchange for his soul? But how? How can we live like this? When we are naturally so selfish and can't dream of doing anything, even acts of service, for motives other than what do I get out of it? How will this boost my reputation? What will Jesus give me in exchange? How do we do it? Good verse 33. But turning, Peter has rebuked Jesus at this point. Verse 33. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan. That word seeing is more than just looking and noticing what you see. One commentator translates it, setting his gaze. The picture is like this. Jesus is here. Peter has pulled him aside and his disciples are standing over there. And Peter comes to him and says, no, it doesn't have to be suffering. You don't have to die. What are you saying? That's a bad plan. We can do this another way. And Jesus looks away and sets his gaze on not the disciples, but his disciples. Get behind me, Satan. Satan, not just the evil one, not just the deceiver, but the tempter. We can do this another way. We can have power. We can have glory. It doesn't have to be like this. The Son of Man must suffer many things. Why? For his disciples. Get behind me. I've come for them. Sets his gaze on them. How can we lose our lives? How can we give everything for him? It all comes down to how we answer that question. Who do you say that I am? You are the Christ. The Christ who sets his gaze on us. The one who gives his crown to take up his cross for them and for us. 
And only after receiving the love of the king on the cross can you take up your own and give everything away to lose your life because he gave you his. He has given you himself and everything else thrown in. And so we can give our lives away. We can take up our crosses out of love for him and love for our neighbor for the sake of his glory and for the life of the world because of who he is. I want to close with a prayer. I opened um, with Ricky Bobby. I want to close with the Puritans. This is taken from the Valley of Vision. Will you pray with me? Lord, high and holy, meek and lowly, thou hast brought me to the Valley of Vision, where I live in the depths but see thee in the heights. Hemmed in by mountains of sin, I behold thy glory. Let me learn by paradox that the way down is the way up, that to be low is to be high, that the broken heart is the healed heart, that the contrite spirit is the rejoicing spirit, that the repenting soul is the victorious soul, that to have nothing is to possess all, that to bear the cross is to wear the crown, that to give is to receive, that the valley is the place of vision. Lord, in the daytime, stars can be seen from the deepest wells, and the deeper the wells, the brighter thy stars shine. Let me find thy light in my darkness, thy life in my death, thy joy in my sorrow, thy grace in my sin, thy riches in my poverty, thy glory in my valley. In Christ's name, amen.